Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today, David Franzen Rodriguez, head of marketing at Bitcoin Depot. David's an award-winning Forbes-published marketer and sales strategist in his career as both a business owner and CMO. He has led transformational changes in both scaled businesses as well as startups that are at an inflection point in their growth. David considers himself to be a brand marketer in the broadest sense because of his keen focus on changing established behaviors and ways of thinking. David, welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Vincent. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So tell me about like your journey in terms of like when you kicked off your career, where did you think you were going to go and how'd you end up taking this this path that you've been on? Yeah, it's a really interesting story, at least for me and my friends and my family as I tell it. But, uh, you know, when I originally went to school, I studied business and finance and I had always had this dream of becoming this, you know, Wall Street stockbroker. It was in the 90s and kind of Wall Street was out, the movie, all these kind of figureheads that I looked at and was like, that's what I want to do. I want to make tons of money. And I got out of college and I found it very difficult to find a job in Wall Street, right? And I was living in Texas at the time, so it was even harder. So I ended up taking a job at a a clearinghouse in Dallas, Texas, and spent a year doing analysis of trades coming in through various exchanges across the country. And I quickly realized this is the most boring thing ever and I don't (laughs) want to do it again. So uh, I packed it up, called it quits. And actually, it was at the very beginning of the boom of the internet and job boards and things like that. And I actually went to Yahoo and they used to have this pretty comprehensive jobs listing. It was a jobs board on Yahoo. And so I went on there and decided I want to leave Texas. I want to go and explore the country. My wife and I had just gotten married and I came across this little posting of a job. It was for a product manager at a financial planning firm based in Hartford, Connecticut. And so we were in Dallas. I got a job interview, talked to who would soon be my boss. We fell in love with each other. She flew me out to Hartford and we talked about the job. It was for a internet-based, right? One of the very first internet-based financial planning firms, right? So you'd like put in your your preferences, your goals, what do you want to do with your money, kind of your retirement goals, and it would spit out a plan for you automatically without having to go to a financial planner at way less cost. And I thought, this is really interesting. And so they offered me the job. I packed it up, got a U-Haul, drove out there and began my journey down this path of marketing. And so product management was a very good entryway into that. And so with that experience, I moved back after a couple of years to Texas and joined a company in Dallas called Trintech, who was in the fintech space at the time. And they were offering patient software right, to banks and organizations across the country. And they said, hey, we want to get into healthcare. Could you help us find a business case? And with my background in financial planning and some other areas that sort of spoke to them, they said, we'd like you to lead the charge. And that's how it started. So we found a company in Chicago and said, we should buy this company to complement what you do today with reconciliation, get into the healthcare space. And they said, you've done such a great job doing market intelligence, understanding the market, the customer, the competitors, et cetera. We basically want you to head up sales and marketing for us. 
they were a small company. It was about $5 million a year in business. So I packed it up again, moved to Chicago with my wife and kids, and pretty much just started marketing and sales, learning from the ground up. And it was a great time to do that because all of these new concepts and ideas about content marketing and using Google advertising and account-based marketing still had not been developed very fully at the time. So I was learning, but also taking advantage of the internet and what it had to offer. And we crushed it using those like really good content marketing and setting up a very rigorous sales processes and things like that. And that's how it started. So that was my very first official marketing and sales job. Well, I love that because so many of the marketers that I've talked to and so many of the best marketers have dabbled or spent some time in sales, whether it's officially or unofficially, but like being able to understand like where the rubber hits the road and where deals actually happen is so critical to being a good marketer. What do you think are the traits that make a strong marketer and make a strong marketing leader? Yeah, you know, I've, I've been asked this quite a bit over the course of the last few years. And what I always come back to is most people have this idea of chief marketing officers and marketers as being extroverts, right? Like we're extremely outgoing, the flamboyant kind, we dress fashionably, all that kind of good stuff. We're just outgoing people and we love to be center of attention. But what I found is that I tend to kind of waver between introvert and extrovert, right? So in my own personal life, I'm more of an introvert. I've got my set of friends. I don't really reach out too much, but at work, I'm an extrovert. But I think the introvert part of me really makes me a better marketer because what it lends to is better listening. You tend to listen more. And as a marketer, it's critical to listen. And so when you think about how do you apply that to your job as a marketer, it's listening to one, the market. Two, listening to your customers, what they want, and then also listening to your internal customers at where you work. So what does leadership want? What do your sales leaders want? What does IT need? And when you can do that and listen to not only external forces, but internal forces like your team, especially as a leader, you become the best marketer because you take what you're listening and learning from it and then applying that as an extrovert to market what you know you need to market. Yeah, I completely agree with like in terms of what you're looking at on introvert versus extrovert. And there's a lot of misconceptions there. I as well am, I consider myself to be an introvert, depending if I'm taking like a Myers-Briggs, depending on the day, mm-hmm. like I could end up as an INTP or an ENTP if I'm like kind of like stretching the truth on yeah, the yeah. And I think the biggest thing that a lot of people don't understand is like the introvert extrovert is not what you're capable of doing. It's not Mm -hmm. how you're capable of showing up in your life, in your work and in different types of social settings. It's just merely referring to what you get energy out of doing. Yeah, There's a lot of people that they don't get energy out of working a room, going to a cocktail hour, talking to hundreds of people in a trade show booth. It doesn't necessarily mean though just because you don't get energy out of it, that you can't be good at it or that you can't like flip it on for a few hours. Mm -hmm. A lot of, uh, I call them closet introverts. A lot of marketers are introverts in their personal life. And then when you show up at work, like everybody they work with would guess that they're an extrovert. Yeah, Like these closet introverts, a lot of the times are the type of people where they can go to a trade show and go into game mode. But then at the Mm -hmm. end of the night, like they're exhausted. Because it just takes so much energy and so much purposeful intention to be able to do that well. 
So Yeah, and I think it lends itself to also marketers who were salespeople as well, because to be in sales, you got to be an extrovert, right? So I think that's why I sort of liked both, but tend to be more of the marketer because being the introvert is also listening to the data as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times as an extrovert, I've seen extrovert type marketers, even on my team, and they tend to gloss over some of the data. And I think the data is really, really important. And there's so much of it now, right? Like you could Google marketing data and like 50,000 companies pop up with 50,000 ways to look at marketing data. And you have to listen to it to make better decisions. And so I, I think it also helps on that side as well. Absolutely. The data has changed so much over the past 15 to 20 years. I, mean, I was kind of laughing when you brought up Yahoo because I literally have not thought about Yahoo and I don't even know how long because like <laughs> Yahoo back in the day wasn't even a search engine until really Google and some of the others like Babelfish came around. I remember yeah, Babelfish. right. Yeah. Like Yahoo was really, it was a directory. Like you'd go to a homepage yeah. and there'd be like a million links, almost like Craigslist still is today. Mm-hmm. And you would just keep clicking links until you finally found the website that you were looking at. But the marketing times have changed too, because like traditional marketing, much longer campaigns, you're not testing, you're iterating halfway through the campaign, a week into the campaign, but you also have just like so much more data where today, you know, YouTube has a feature where you post a YouTube video in the first 20 minutes, YouTube's going to tell you how that video stacks up to your other videos that you've put out. Yeah, mm-hmm. And the same thing, no matter what you're putting out, you're getting early reactions and early data and yeah. not waiting until the end of the campaign. There's a great example of this in a book called The Lean Startup, where they talk about TurboTax and they switch their marketing strategies from they would run an annual marketing campaign, launch it essentially in December, January, run it through mm-hmm. tax season, and then do a postmortem at the end of it and then start planning the next year. And they've moved now to, and what has made TurboTax so successful is that iterative testing and kind of pivoting during the campaign. What are the other things that you've seen have changed in the marketing space that have impacted kind of your strategy as you've gone about leading marketing efforts at these various organizations? Yeah, you know, I think the obvious one, right, is social media. When I first started my marketing career, like social didn't exist. I think LinkedIn was just beginning. The only thing that was around was Facebook. And people, it depends on the type of business you're in. Facebook really, you know, meta nowadays, right? It's meta, (laughs) So it is good for direct-to-consumer fashion brands, which I've worked with, things like that. But for B2B and certain types of consumer businesses, like Facebook just is, it's not relevant, right, to generating business. But social wasn't even a thing that we thought about back then. It wasn't something where we thought we could meet someone at a point when they're maybe offline, relaxing, not working, and try to be top of mind. And so... I think when that started to kind of bleed into business to business marketing and basically any type of marketing, I think it sort of changed the game, right? It was no longer just a paid search. It was paid social and it wasn't just organic search anymore. And it wasn't just organic social. So like there are so many ways now that you can reach a customer and it sort of changed the game, but it also changed how you have to work your budgets and ROI and all of those and brings in a whole new set of data that we really weren't even thinking about for decades, right? I mean, you couldn't even imagine that type of information back in the 80s, right? Which was before my time. It was obviously before yours, right? So like this was changing the game. I completely agree. And what I love about like that change is 
it has separated great marketers from good marketers Mm -hmm. because I can't even imagine going to any stakeholder now and saying, Hey, we're going to spend 150,000 on this campaign. And the intention is to improve brand awareness. Like I just, you wouldn't say that now (laughs) Yeah, because because you have a a way of being able to better attribution, deliver Mm -hmm. and measure ROI today. All of that's that's changed and it still continues to change. And I think what's interesting that's happening in the digital ad space today is you would not traditionally think of Facebook and Instagram as like B2B platforms. And yet right now I keep getting targeted from Clearbit on my oh, Instagram yeah. profile yeah, where yeah. they have a new product. They're not a sponsor of this show, but, and I haven't <laughs> even used this product, but I keep getting targeted for it. And the advertisement is an Instagram story saying, Hey, we're targeting marketers on Instagram, if you want to see how we're doing it, hit this link. And then after that, you go to a web page, but they're essentially created the same type of targeting that you would expect mm-hmm. from like a LinkedIn or like a Zoom info, creating mm-hmm. a custom audience that you can upload into Facebook and Instagram or Meta oh, now yeah. and yeah. be able to actually do that targeting. And this is before even like the cookie list world that we're going to mm. head into over the next 24 months that are going to fundamentally change everything to how we do digital marketing. Yeah. How have you, like, I'd be interested out of all the the folks that you talk to, how much are they really utilizing meta anymore for B2B in social in general? Like TikTok, I think I heard, uh, you probably know better than I do. Like I heard spending on TikTok advertising outpaced meta for the first time, I think this year. And they're saying it's just going to continue to increase. You know, of all the marketers that I've talked to, I think the trend that is very, very clear is you can't put all your eggs in one bucket anymore. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a past world, whether it's D2C or B2B, I think B2B is tough because there's enterprise B2B and then there's consumer B2B yeah. where it technically is business to business, but you're really targeting like an SMB market that sometimes behaves like a consumer would. Yeah, And so in the past where you might be able to scale a campaign and not plateau on a campaign on a particular channel, mm-hmm. you might go all in on that because there's so much optimization and testing that you can do in that single thing. But also like from a mindshare perspective, it's easier to kind of focus on one thing as long as you can hit the total numbers that you're trying to hit. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's shifting now is I'm seeing people say, I'm thinking of it more as there's one or two big buckets, mm-hmm. but I have small dollars going into five to six other things because if something happens to those one or two big buckets, I don't want to start from square one yeah. on those five or six other areas. Mm-hmm. And the ad product is pretty new at places like TikTok where Meta is just such a honed in system with the amount of yeah. data and the number of years that they've been doing it. But things to keep an eye on, I think, are OTT and streaming uh, mm-hmm. over the next five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know, YouTube is already a great channel, B2B yeah. as well as D2C, just because mm-hmm. that is where, I mean, I practically learned how to market by doing two things, Googling things and then <laughs> reading the HubSpot blog because oh, every yeah, single yeah. Google yeah. search that you do takes you to the HubSpot blog. Yeah, I'm a big fan um, of your blog too. <laughs> <laughs> great content marketing it done is, right yeah. there. Because And so OTT streaming, I think, is one to definitely take a look at. I think Spotify is onto something with programmatic purchasing on podcasts. Yeah. And yeah. especially as Spotify, especially as like players like Netflix roll out 
a paid lower paid tier that's advertiser funded. I mean, mm-hmm. that's going to open up so much inventory yeah. in the market as soon as Netflix has subscribers that are watching advertisements. Yeah. Have you seen anything on the Hulu as well? Like I've been getting hit with that a lot and I don't know anyone who's used it yet, but it looks really interesting. I've run campaigns on Hulu and I think across all of them, it's early days, right? Yeah. And I think it just depends on how you're measuring it. The hard part that's challenging is like when you're running small dollars on a single platform is how are you setting up that test, whether it's by geography so that you Mm -hmm. can narrow into specific zip codes or are you doing it on specific industries where your company might serve seven or eight industries, but maybe you're running something like very targeted within a specific industry and potentially even in a specific industry and zip codes, DMA, just so that you can then actually get the measurement on it. Yeah. But not a secret, obviously, the changes that Apple and Google are making in terms of iOS 14.5 and how that impacts tracking as well as what Google has been very open about moving to with a cookie-less world, that it's going to become more and more important to take a look at your total marketing spend divided yeah. by your acquisition numbers, whether that's lead or whether it's conversion across mm-hmm. all channels, because it's yep. going to become harder and harder to be able to attribute to individual channels. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, agreed. Over the last, you know, 10 yeah. years or so, like attribution has become such a big deal. I mean, and every company I go to, it's either ROAS or CAC, how they're reporting it and getting that golden ratio, right? All of these things are super important. And it becomes very difficult as a marketer, right, to start to get very, very specific on different channels and understanding what's the return on investment for each when, like the Apple update and some of their privacy policies and stuff start to take effect on the broad scale, it is going to become more difficult. But I think creative marketers can find ways around it. I think to an extent, maybe this is the wrong perspective. I'd be curious for anybody watching this, leave a comment, let me know what you think. I think the danger in the old world where we were measuring ROAS campaign by campaign is that you could live on the good performance of individual campaigns that might have run for a short period of time. Yeah. But if you're measuring total marketing spend divided by your growth, at the end of the month, there's nothing to hide behind, right? Yeah. It's the total yeah. dollar that you spent. Mm-hmm. And so when you take an owner's perspective and take a step back and look more broadly at the business, I do think it encourages good behavior where in that ROAS world, you'd have somebody going, oh yeah, I'm hitting 10X ROAS. But it's like, well, (laughs) how much did you actually spend there? Over what time period did you actually spend that? And are you still doing that today? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You're absolutely right. Um, So as you've moved around to different organizations, different products, different companies, how do you choose where you're going to go next and what are the types of things that you're looking for in good match for your career at that moment in time? I think for anybody, right? Not just marketers, but for anyone, I think nowadays, especially culture is a big deal for me. And I strongly believe good body, good mind, good work. And I really look for companies that really present themselves culturally in a good way right? Are they diverse? Are they inclusive? Do they have a good reputation in the marketplace? Can I go and find good things that people are saying about the company, right? That's one. And I think if they have a good culture, they're running the company well, they're going to be doing well performance-wise, I think, because they'll get the best out of the people. But as a leader in marketing, I think the next most important thing is collaboration and working with the CEO directly, the leadership team to, to really collaborate on ideas and 
Is it a collaborative culture? What are those things that will call me to that company to say, yeah, what my voice is going to make a difference and they are going to listen to my ideas, but also provide me good constructive feedback, right? And that's really, for me, I think the two most important things that I look for. And beyond that, I also will take a look at financials. What does the future hold for them? What's the outlook on the industry that I'm going into, right? And so I think you and I had talked earlier about crypto and Bitcoin. And I've been a big enthusiast for a long time, but I really couldn't find the right time to get into that particular industry. Although I knew I could crush it, right? Once I got in it, but I just was looking for the right entry. And I think with my current position at Bitcoin Depot, they not only have been bootstrapped by the founder, the guy that's running the company is super sharp and amazing. He's done some great things, hasn't taken any money. And the company is doing an amazing amount of revenue. And they're also getting ready for a SPAC deal next year. So that's going to be north of an $800 million deal for the company. And so for me, that just means there is something really good going on there. And so those are the kind of things that I look at for joining a new company. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think when you join a new company, knowing what to look for, a part of that involves like knowing yourself mm-hmm. and knowing what type of marketer you want to be. It's really, really different being a marketer on a startup for a product that doesn't have product market fit yet. Not right. to say that it won't have product market fit, but it's just not known yet because so early in the journey versus joining somewhere where product market fit already exists and just talking about mm-hmm. scaling, scaling growth. There's so many great resources out there. One of my favorites is Deloitte puts out a list every single year that's called the Technology Fast 500. It's the 500 fastest growing technology companies from the previous year. And mm-hmm. it's one of the best ways of being able to just know that the company that you're looking is going to be a company that's going to continue hiring versus maybe the worst thing to happen is to join a company that is going to have layoffs soon. Mm -hmm. For this past summer, we've seen a lot of layoffs in the technology space. And to the extent that some analysts and some people looking for new roles are just saying, well, I'm going to avoid technology companies entirely because as VC dollars dry up with raising interest rates, it just doesn't make sense to go into that space. But it might for a company that's cash flowing well, a little bit later on in the journey. I mean, Drift at number seven on here, there's a company that's that put out an incredible B2B um, product. But I mean, look at this year over year growth. But this is one of the like little nuggets that's great, great to look at. The other thing I I hadn't really thought about that. That's actually a great way to also look for new jobs and reach out and see if they're hiring and across the board. That's actually a really good idea. I thought about that. But last year, I was just going to say, you said technology took a hit. I think in particular, fintech took a hit. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, you saw Stripe devalued, Bolt was laying off. I mean, I think it's still happening. A lot of these startups, these poor guys, they were, had great ideas, but for some reason, fintech just, man, just got slammed last year. Yeah, absolutely. And some of that, one could argue is a healthy correction. Like Stripe is an incredible company. They have an incredible product. When you take a look at like what it used to take back in the Yahoo days to get a merchant account. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) um, Compared to how easy it is to A, use Stripe checkout links that's basically Mm -hmm. out of the box and works right away, but B, like actually just build into their APIs. It's a great product. And Stripe isn't going anywhere in the near future. But Mm -hmm. when you take a look at 2020, 2019 valuations, 
potentially maybe a little high. Yeah, <laughs> agreed. So in this crypto space a little bit, crypto obviously big, you want to talk corrections, big correction there mm-hmm. in the recently. That must have been something that was top of mind for you. You go in to a full-time job, especially it sounds like you wouldn't consider yourself like a crypto day in, day out part of the circle. You know, what were your considerations moving your career in that direction? I think when the pandemic hit, I had just sold my telehealth company, my partner and I, we had just sold it. And we had IntelliTriage for six years prior to that. And it was a labor of love for us, right? We bootstrapped it. And it's a really amazing story we could talk about some other time. But once we sold the company, instead of raising money for it, I took some time off. And right as soon as I decided to do that, the pandemic hit. It was the worst time to kind of semi-retire, right? Because I couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't travel. We had to cancel our trip to Costa Rica. Then we tried to go somewhere else. And I was just like, okay, this is crazy. And I had begun to dabble into crypto, right? And this is just a really kind of full circle story. It was crazy. So I had a friend of mine that was up in Canada at the time. And Canada really seemed to have much more widespread adoption early on for crypto. I don't know why. That was something that was really commonplace up in Canada. And I had a friend of mine who lived up there. And we were talking one day and he's just like, hey, you should come to Canada. I've got a cannabis business up here and I want to do some other things. And I was like, all right, that sounds great. I'll come up and whenever the pandemic's over and see what's going on and see if we can work together. But in the meantime, he was like, hey, have you been following crypto? Are you doing anything? And I was like, uh, not a whole lot. I kind of understand it. I haven't opened a wallet yet. He got me onto crypto.com's platform early days. And it was because of their little rewards program they had with their credit card. Mm-hmm. And he's like, get into it this way. It's safe, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how I started it. I opened up a wallet. I deposited some money, bought some Bitcoin. Wasn't quite sure. I do remember buying Bitcoin early days when it was a couple of dollars, but it was so hard to buy. I just remember it was so difficult and I lost my wallet or wherever I had it stored uh, at the time. And this was years ago. And I keep kicking myself because I had never tracked it, never knew where it was. I totally forgot. I'm pretty sure I'd be a, a millionaire right now, but many times over, but that's another story. So I said, okay, let's get back into it. It's safe. I know where it is now. And then that just kind of started my journey. I started following influencers in the space like crypto, you know, crypto face, all these other types of platforms. And I just got really enthusiastic about it. I started getting into smart contracts and learning more about that. Never got into NFTs, but that was kind of my journey. And then One day in the middle of the pandemic, we were looking at some altcoins and we were doing some smart contract trading, me and him. And I got through, I want to say through, not through Reddit, through one of the the channels there. It was, I think it was either Discord or Reddit. I got scammed. They quickly drained my wallet of about $5,000 worth of Bitcoin, but I was able to stop it. And so this was so frustrating to me. And I realize now it's just like someone breaking into your car. You're like, this, I can't believe this happened. Like that I feel so violated. And I sort of took a step back, but then slowly started getting into it. And what it made me think of is trust, right? Like the crypto community has to build trust with the consumer. And you hear these stories day in, day out of people getting scammed, platforms being hacked. And I get it. It's early days, but... People get scammed in the stock market all the time. Some will even say that it's completely against the individual investor. I don't know if that's true, but sometimes it does seem like it, right? When you look at the problems with Robinhood had, stopping trading 
of certain stocks or when they started getting into crypto, like they were having problems. And so it's new. I get it. There's problems. But I think now it's about developing trust and security and making it easy, right? So like going back full circle to my very first experience years and years ago, where it took moving earth to get my crypto bought. This company that I decided to join now, Bitcoin Depot, just makes it so easy. If you've got cash, you just go to the ATM machine and there are 7,000 locations. You put it in, you can use your own wallet or you can use their wallet and you're done. Minimal KYC, it's super easy and it's just really more about enabling the unbanked to be banked. And to me, that is purpose. It's a purpose-driven mission for the company. And I am on board with that 100% because at my previous company, we're also in that sort of giving the ability for the small guys worldwide to be able to send and receive payments cross-border. This is giving the individual who maybe is having a difficult time getting a bank account, being able to store wealth and transfer that wealth maybe to a family member back in Africa or Australia or South America somewhere, right? And to me, that's extremely important. You should be able to send money when you want and how you want. And if it's crypto, because it's easily transferable, that's even better. And so that's kind of why I got back into the space with Bitcoin Depot, because their mission is important to me. And what they're doing is important. And they have purpose, right? Yeah, I think you nailed it on the consumer adoption Every product, whether it's a financial product or whether it's anything else, has an adoption mm -hmm. curve. And when you take a look at products that gain adopt mass market adoption easily, or not easily, it's never easy, but yeah. uh, quickly, it's companies that take some type of a problem and they solve it in a way that makes it either more simple, mm -hmm. faster, or less expensive. A perfect example of that is with Uber. You know, they yeah. took key parts of the experience with calling a taxi, not mm -hmm. knowing how long the taxi would take to get to you, and then having to beg the taxi driver to take a credit card at the end of the taxi ride yeah. and made that <laughs> friction go away. And that's what ended up driving the adoption along with heavy subsidizing yeah. fares. But, you know, that's what drove places, companies like Uber to actually get that mass adoption and I think the technology is really interesting because now that it's out of the box, I don't think there's mm -hmm. putting it back in the box yeah. in the NFT space. Like I get all of the conversation about pump and dumps and, mm -hmm. and people building NFT projects just to make a few million dollars and then disappear yeah. for the rest of their life. But I think what ends up being interesting about the NFT space is that that drives the traditional art market, the actual physical oh, yeah, yeah. art market. Yeah. Yeah. to change because what it has brought is transparency and a ledger to actually know the history of a transaction behind a piece mm -hmm. of art in an NFT case is digital. But people who collect physical art now as they're buying that artwork is like, well, why don't we have something like this? Like, why can't I see how the value of painting that I own has increased or decreased over time? There's a million examples out there of applying like blockchain technology, yeah. whether it's in business or whether it's in like personal applications today. Yeah. But I think smart people are watching and taking a look at, okay, how can we actually use the essence of what the technology has progressed to and incorporate that into mm -hmm. like the real world? So you're talking about taking something Bitcoin and kind of building mass adoption of that. 
I think it happens both ways because the traditional industry will have to also innovate and it doesn't have to be the groundbreaking innovation, but they will also have to innovate to be able to protect what exists today. Yeah. And I mean, think about what you said about Uber, right? Like Uber was a game changer for a lot of reasons, but I'd love to hear how do you think it's going for now? Because you just said like the traditional markets have to innovate as well. And I just got back from Las Vegas at Money 2020 and I actually saw more people in line for taxis than I did for Uber and Lyft. So I feel like something's happening there. Like the taxis are getting more innovative too. Like, how do you explain that? Like what's happening there? Well, I think my $15 Uber airport ride now cost me 50 bucks. And yes. <laughs> in the market, if you're a consumer and you're standing there, there's a supply and demand game there too. Like mm -hmm. in that free and open marketplace, if I open up the Uber app and it's five minutes out, and there's a taxi right there and the line looks less than five minutes, consumer makes a choice. Yeah. And the big piece that was different before was that the prices were much, much less than the taxis. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I don't know what the future will hold. I think for me, they got me. Like I'm not going back to a world before Amazon Prime personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it worked with me. I am paying that. $40, $50 Uber ride to the airport where it used to be less. But I also think that it doesn't end with Uber and Lyft as well. I think new players will continue to go into the market. There's a company in Nashville where I live that's called Earth Rides, and every single one of their rides is inside of an electric car. And oh, yeah. Yeah. that might not appeal to everybody, but for a segment of the population that does eat organic, that is worried about climate change, that might drive up an electric car themselves. That could be the thing that could be important yeah. to that consumer. And I, yeah, that, I think there's a niche there for an earth rides. If as long as they have the capital to scale their business and enter enough markets and to be able to grab enough market share, I think there's a world where something like that can exist, but you don't yeah, hear too much conversation about the autonomous car getting <laughs> rid of the driver anymore. So yeah, you know, that, that conversation has changed. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely would subscribe to that. I mean, it's with purpose-driven marketing, you could definitely reach that consumers and tug at their heartstrings as far as helping the climate. So I think the science is still out there to be debated whether or not it actually does help. But for me personally, I would definitely give them a shot for yeah. sure. So that's an interesting that's, concept. Though. I hadn't heard of it. Yeah, I mean, and the pandemic really forced a lot of innovation, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think the pandemic to an extent has accelerated innovation where natural trends were already present. Natural trends like things like e commerce. When you take a look at the percentage of brick and mortar spending versus e commerce before the pandemic, I'm going to totally get these numbers wrong, but if I remember right, it was like 30 to 35% or somewhere in that range. And Amazon was hiring hundreds of thousands of people in 2020 just to keep up with the demand. Yeah. of e-commerce. And then you're seeing this year, things are correcting. People yep. are going back to brick and mortar purchasing, but it's not going to go down to below the 2019 levels of e-commerce. It essentially sped us up by about two to three years to where the analysts said that e-commerce was going to be. Going to be you know, yeah. We've accelerated by about two or three years there. And I think other th really great things have come out of it too. Like I'm not going back to a world without curbside pickup. Like I absolutely <laughs> yeah. love a world where I can place an order on target. I'm happy to share my GPS location during my 15 minute drive. 
because yeah. I'm thrilled that the person's waiting there as you're pulling mm -hmm. up. And like, that's great use of both marketing product and kind of technology evolving. Agreed. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about like, what are the best resources that you've had throughout your career and what advice would you give to somebody who wants to grow in their marketing career for how to do so? Yeah, I think for me, the best resources have been, we mentioned one before, you go to Google, right? I think there's a wealth of information out there, but there are some standards like HubSpot. Their blog is really good. On LinkedIn, there's a couple of different channels and groups that you can subscribe to that are really, really good. But also always perfect your craft by taking classes and understanding the finer details in the art that you want to perfect yourself in, right? So there's classes for Google Ads, there's classes for analytics, there's classes for ABM marketing, direct-to-consumer marketing, all available online and a lot of times for free. You yep. can take these classes and continue to hone your craft. And I think over the years, I personally have not had to get super in the weeds and actually pushing the buttons on Google Ads and analytics, but being able to drive the decisions and help the team understand what I need. But I still take the classes to understand because I have to speak the language to my team and be able to communicate with them and build trust there, right? Yeah, so I, I think you know. Agree. Yeah, I think always, always, always learning. And don't assume you know everything, right? Even as a, a leader for 15 years in marketing, I don't know everything, right? I'm not an expert in social media marketing, right? And influencer marketing. I may want to hire someone who's an expert there and have them teach me a little bit about it. Be humble. Be always be humble. But I've always looked to my predecessors as well to understand the basics of marketing, right? Because I think principles never change. And I think you can take those principles of marketing and apply them to different industries and different markets, right? What I will never accept is someone who tells me, oh, you have to be an expert in crypto or you have to be an expert in healthcare in order to work here. I think that's a bunch of BS. I think if you understand the core principles of marketing, and you are good at what you do, you can apply those to any industry. So don't ever let that be a reason not to get into something new. I am a testament to that. I've worked in healthcare. I've worked in finance. Now I'm working in crypto. So you can do it and you can be successful. So don't ever stop. You put other resources too, like Masterclass is good. Learning from these big Madison Avenue type marketers is also important too, because branding is a key part of marketing, right? You have to know how to position your brand and create a great brand platform for the companies that you work at. And get always get back to the basics, right? The first thing I always do when I get to a new company is I want to understand the brand platform. So I want to understand their archetype. What's the golden circle look like for them? What do their customers say about them? You understanding competitors, mission, vision, values, all that kind of stuff is really important. Yes. So many good tips and nuggets in there, right? Staying humble, always learning, take the courses, reach out, build relationships with mentors um, mm -hmm. and peers. Don't let your limiting beliefs stop you from pursuing a role inside of whether it's a company or an industry that you want to break into. One of the things that I've heard, I forget who told me this, but he said in your career, if you want to move into a new role, you know, you have your industry that you work in, you yep. have your functional role, marketing, sales, operations, product, whatnot, mm -hmm. and then you have your network and you can't change all three at the same time. Like if you're working in marketing, the hospitality industry in the US, it's really hard to be able to switch to somewhere where you're in healthcare in Europe and doing right. operations, yeah. but you absolutely yeah. can switch one to two at a time. That's right. And yeah. 
you can actually switch all three if you do it in two steps where you might make a change where you go from hospitality to healthcare in one move and then Mm -hmm. from marketing over to HR marketing over to operations in another move. And now you've actually made that move into healthcare and into another function. And so I I love what you're saying in terms of don't let your thought that because you don't have that specific industry experience, the more desirable trade, I think as an employer or as a manager is learning agility. Like I would would rather have somebody who's humble and has high learning agility and wants to Mm -hmm. learn a new industry especially over somebody who potentially has been in that industry for a long enough period of time that they think that things can't change yeah, or they're like so ingrained yeah. in yeah. this is the way the industry is and it'll never be different than that. Yeah, that, you're absolutely right there. Like, I think that's so important. Learning agility. It's a great way to put it. I love that. And for anybody listening on here or watching on here, where can they follow you, where they can learn more about you and stay connected? Yeah, so I think on a professional level, the easiest way to get a hold of me is just to, through LinkedIn. Just to look for David Franzine Rodriguez, and I'll pop up and message me directly, connect, follow, whatever. Awesome. And we have your LinkedIn URL up on the screen. We'll put it in the show notes for wherever you're listening to this podcast as well. David, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. You bet. Thank you so much. I had a great time today. Hope you have a great rest of your day. All right. Appreciate it. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.